last Sunday as I finished with Drive Up, I drove away and I was thinking, oh, how nice it's going to be on Sunday in a week's time and I'll just be able to sit back and listen to the sermon. And then I thought, you idiot, you're preaching. Um, so that was, a, okay, I need to create something to write. No. Um, my topic today is about renewing our awe of God. And I have had this topic on my mind for quite a while, so I didn't just pull it out of the air this week. And yes, I know that God is our loving Father. Uh, I know that some of you really love to sing about, you know, the intimacy being like a sloppy wet kiss. That is gross. Um, today, let's sing instead, you know, from the highest of heights to the depths of the sea, creations revealing your majesty. And if there was a jingle for this sermon, that would be it. Uh, and my lead singer would be Job. Oh, Kari Job from, you know, Jesus Culture. No. Steve Jobs? No. Oh, that book about suffering in the middle of the Bible? No. Well, yes, that book, but I'm actually not focusing on the suffering. I'm just going to bring this a bit closer because I feel I can hear the feedback sound um, and I'm easily distracted. So in the centre of the Bible, we have uh, what I call the being human books um, or wisdom literature. So the psalmist pours out his soul. Proverbs is honest about how annoying humans can be. Uh, Ecclesiastes faces the meaning and purpose of existence with a, you know, an unflinching gaze and asks, why am I here? And Song of Solomon answers with sex. Not really. Um, but before them all is Job. So Job's writer has been really helpful to us to, by, to show us that this book is actually historical because um, they've included some specific place references and a specific lineage of someone. Um, and so we know that the events likely occurred in this story, post-flood, just before the time of Abram, due to the length of the time that the Bible tells us Job lived, which was in the hundreds. So this story takes place about 4,000 years ago. And it's probably one of the oldest existing pieces of drama in the world. Because much like ancient Greek drama, it has a prologue or it sets up a situation, a bunch of long speeches expressing conflicting ideas and ends with an epilogue. So basically, this book, Job, is a script, a 4,000-year-old bit of drama in the middle of the Bible. That's how I know God loves me. Um, and also at the end of uh, a lot of Greek plays is a feature known as Deus Ex Machina, which I just love saying, Deus Ex Machina. It sounds cool. Basically, it means God, Deus, arrives by machine, ex machina. Um, so they, the ancient Greeks had this, like, crane uh, in which the... That's, that's the machine, in which the relevant Greek deity character would appear from above and abruptly force a resolution to the action. Uh, we still call it Deus ex machina in a play or story or film when, rather than being solved internally, some force from outside imposes an ending on the narrative. So remember that. So let me give you a super quick gist of the book of Job. Job is a good guy who has terrible things happen to him. And this is part of a test set up by Satan with God's okay. Friends come to comfort Job and they make speeches about the situation expressing conflicting views of Job's and God's part in this. And a big aspect of that is contemplating and arguing about the awesomeness and mystery of God. Job demands the opportunity to present his case to God. He says, I have not deserved this. And God arrives. He steps into the action. Deus ex machina. I told you I love saying that. Uh, and basically says, uh, I'm God. Are you? 
and uses the majesty of everything that he's created to really ram that point home. The humans are left speechless and humbled and Job gets super blessed by God in the second half of his life. So God shows himself to Job in all of his awfulness, in the old meaning of the word. Not awesome, producing some awe, but awful. Job seeing God was full of awe. Now, there's lots of ways we can describe God, but when we go on the spectrum of how awe-creating a being can be, God is at the very greatest amount of awe-inspiring. I mean, we use the words awesome and awful all the time, so it makes it difficult to convey how much awe being in God's presence would create in us. So I'm actually going to get Bo to play a two-minute audio sketch to help you get thinking about the word. I didn't know if it was going to be a jive kid, so I had instructions on the side of how to do it. So let's have a listen. (laughs) So I am using the... uh, I'm talking about the awfulness of God in the old meaning of word when I say that God is awful. Um... So a thing or person we are in awe of, it takes all of our attention. There's no room for anything else in that moment. We find it really hard to look away. Think of an awe-inspiring physical feat. So I'm actually going to give you an example to connect with that feeling we have when we witness something awe-inspiring. So, Bo, if you can click on to... This will take about two and a half minutes. That gets me like every time I'm in tears, every time I see that, um, because it is so awe-inspiring. Like I watched it this morning and I choked up and I'm choking up again. I just think seeing a person, um, that tiny little body on the edge of that cliff is just ridiculous. Um, so maybe, you don't, maybe there's other things you respond to, but that for me is like, oh my gosh, that is awe-inspiring. But here's the challenge. In the dry, rocky places of busy days, on screens, at work, distracted, it can be really hard to step into the awe of God. I'm um, fortunate. I live surrounded by beautiful tall trees. I have the flashing expanse of a lake across the road. And so I'm really trying to pause and be aware and to notice. I'm trying to make choices direct my paths, to make myself be available to be awed by God. I mean, even something like that video, I just go, what you have created, God, is amazing. And I get to see that wall later this year. I'm so excited. Um, You know, so I can make choices like meeting up by the sea rather than just at some sidewalk cafe so I can look at the ocean and be awed by God, or to let my car travel the slower but more scenic routes that traverse hills and and wind along green fields. And I'm going to try and do that this afternoon. I, like you, have allowed busyness to dominate and leave no space for awe, to squeeze out the time where I might rest and be renewed in the contemplation of the creator's imagination brought to life in the wonders around me. We live in a world of miracles and yet we can tie on our tasks and our chores and our jobs like blindfolds. So when I make the effort to pull the kayak down to the lake, rather than pursuing that pressing deadline, I'm choosing to give God space to invade, to let him surprise me as he did the other day with wallabies on the inlet shore, where I didn't seek for them, for awe to invade with a flash as I notice the sunset while I'm walking the dogs. For my brother and I to have 
the lasting astonishment of a stag leaping past us close enough to touch and stun us into silence when we went for an unnecessary walk on the moor in England and on that same walk to discover standing stones and ruins like doorways to the past and renew in us the wonderment of the children we once were together, that pioneering spirit of adventurers. God wants all of us to be discoverers of his world. We are made for amazement. It is, it is his delight to hide treasures for us to seek and stumble upon every day, to be awed in unforeseen ways by him, to be witnesses of his wonders. And I hope that inspires you. I, honestly, I wish I could transport all of us to a, a forest cathedral or the pews of a mountainside, and then really I wouldn't need to say anything more. God's word, God's world, sorry, could preach it for me. Um, but we aren't. And Job's story is very interesting, so we're going to dig into it. And I've, what I have done, though, is I've put up images throughout, you'll be noticing throughout um, what I'm saying today, so that you can, you can feast on, rather than Tavia putting on the show, God's putting on the show for you today. All right, so let's dig into Job. The first part of the story makes it clear that Job is a good guy who is genuine in his efforts to do what was right and honor God. And he was the greatest man in his part of the world. He was very rich and very blessed. And then we get what I think is one of the most fascinating sections of the Bible as we get a look backstage, as it were, as Satan and God have a dialogue. And if you haven't read it, go and read it. God's like, look at my man Job. He is so faithful. And Satan's like, well, uh, duh, you protect him and bless him. But if you took all his stuff away, watch him curse you to your face. And God is like, wager accepted. And also, just because supernatural elements are part of this story, it doesn't make it less historical. So Job then gets messenger after messenger. They're almost tripping over each other. It would be comic if it wasn't so tragic. His flocks of animals are raided, servants killed. Fire falls from heaven and burns up sheep and servants. Raiders took your camels and killed your servants. It was a bad day to be a servant. And finally, the house that your sons and daughters were feasting in collapsed under a sudden mighty wind, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Job is naturally grief-stricken. Then, and, and you do have to say, what a guy, he falls to the ground in worship and says, I came into this world with nothing and will take nothing when I leave it. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Praise the name of the Lord. Now, even though we know, because we've looked backstage, that it wasn't God, it was the other guy. So we head backstage again and God is like, look at my man Job, he's still faithful. And Satan's like, faithful, schmeethful, hurt his body. Then he'll curse you. I mean, Satan is an unpleasant person. And the Lord is like, wager accepted. He's in your hands. And Satan leaves and he afflicts Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And I remember having adult chicken pox. It was like one of the worst experiences of my life. I would not wish it on my worst enemy. And Job is in far greater physical pain. The, later in the book, it describes how he feels you know, sick, he feels weak, he can't breathe. He's got these holes throughout his body, poison in his flesh. He wants to die. You know, he says, why won't God give me what I ask for? If only he would just go ahead and kill me. He has prayed that God would just kill him. So he sits in the ashes and then scrapes himself with a shard of pottery. That's an amazing image. Still faithful, despite his trauma, while his wife, who interestingly Satan let live says, stop being faithful, curse God and die, which is why this book is not called Job's Wife. So three friends come and they cry and they sit in silence with him for a week. I think that's very commendable. 
And then the speeches start. Job begins, kill me God, kill me now, except more poetic. At one point, he actually calls God a terrorist. The friends, in response to this, then talk at Job. They patronise and they theologise. And the thing is, the theology is usually wrong. So don't quote their speeches as Bible verses unless you're quoting them in the context of examples of wrong theology. And Job doesn't need his friends to explain God to him. He gets God way better than they do. I mean, that is clear amidst his, admittedly, dramatic responses at times. I feel with Job. I I respond dramatically to things. Um, But he also thinks that God has done this to him and he is hurt and confused. God uses me for target practice, he says. He wounds me again and again. Stop exaggerating, Job, says his friends, which is kind of a bit like sometimes what I say to my nephew when he falls on the ground and is like, oh, the suffering. But Job is actually suffering. And even better, his friends say, what have you done to cause this? Ouch. And I mean, I suspect we all have a couple frenemies like that. Many of Job's, Job's speeches are directed toward God, almost like he's in a court case. God holds me guilty, but I am not. I want to argue my case with him. And certain themes recur as Job tries to express all that is in his head. First, Job has a strong grasp of God's infinite greatness in comparison to us. You know, think of that tiny guy on that enormous cliff face, how he was dwarfed by that. And God, in comparison to us, is so much bigger. We are so much smaller. Although Job is confident that his suffering isn't caused by God's response to his sin, he admits, like all humans, he is sinful. He says, no soap can wash away my sins. And I love this image. Even my clothes are ashamed of me. He sees that there is a gap between the greatness of God and our humanity. Oh, if God were human, he muses. You know, do you see things as we do, he asks? Is your life as short as ours? He's kind of saying, you know, then, then you'd get it. And of course, Jesus was God's eventual answer to Job's cry here. And then Job says, your hands shaped me. You know, they made me in my mother's womb and now they crush me. I mean, I just want you to dwell on this awesome gap that God's unlimited capability to create or destroy us and anything else he made. Second, Job recognises that in nature, as you know, I've been referring to, we can learn about God's awesome capability. And we hear this as Job rebuts his friends. He says... Even the birds and animals have much they could teach you. Ask the creatures of earth and sea for their wisdom. All of them know that God made them. It's God who directs the lives of his creatures. Every man's life is in his power. And then he says, God has the power to act. I mean, we have desires, but we can't always act on them. God always has that capability. And that is an awesome thing. You know, I might desire the roof to fly up this building and give us more of a breeze, but that is not going to happen, at least not without a lot of effort and time and arguments with Kirk and Nicole, Um, but muse on this. If a God, if he desires it, it happens. Third, Job gets God's awesome character and nature, that that it is actually God himself who breaches the impossible gap on our behalf. Listen, he says, I am ready to risk my life. So what if God kills me? I am going to state my case to him. God You will not keep track of my sins. You will forgive them and wipe out the wrongs I have done. And with prophetic insight, he says, there is someone in heaven to stand up for me and take my side. I want someone to plead with God for me as a man pleads for a friend. Contemplate for a moment the awesome character of God who provided our advocate, our friend Jesus, whoever pleads on our behalf. And and I think most of you here do know him, but if you don't, 
get to know this saviour, because this God who, who said, I'm going to do it all for you. All right, fourth, Job gets the opposite of awe. And despite the passing of thousands of years, I am sure that as I read the, the things that Job says, you are going to recognise the very modern people. He says, the wicked tell God to leave them alone. They don't want to know his will for their lives. They think there's no need to serve God nor any advantage in praying to him. They claim to succeed by their own strength, but their way of thinking I can't accept. I mean, you can hear it in those phrases. There's no room for awe in thinking like this. You know, in thinking, go away, God, I don't want to know you. You are pointless, God, and nothing to do with me. I can do it myself. And when I hear people talk like that, I feel like there's something dead inside them that part of them that could be alive to the awesomeness of God. Job, in contrast, and this is point five, he wants to get close to God, to be where God is despite the gap. Um, he says, how I wish I knew where to find him, to go where he is. I want to talk with him. He knows that closeness with a majestic God, despite that majestic God's amazement, amazingness, is actually possible. And this is despite knowing six things, how beyond God us really is, how immense in power God is. Job says he never changes. No one can stop him knowing, doing what he wants to do. He will fulfill what he has planned for me. And I tremble in fear before him. It is God, not the dark, that makes me afraid. He hung the earth in empty space. But these only hints of his power, only whispers we have heard. Who can truly know how great God is? Awe is a response to contemplating the infinite immensity of God and his power. And finally, contemplating all this as a model for us, it stirs Job to evangelism. He says, what hope is there for godless men in the hour when God demands their life? They should have desired the joy he gives. They should have constantly prayed to him. Not, oh, you'll get out of trouble, but joy. Not pray or else, but enjoying conversational relationship with him. Job, in this moment, in the midst of his suffering, evangelizes his frenemies. And he does it using awe. He says, let me teach you how great is God's power and explain what Almighty God has planned. Or can be part of evangelism. So guys, use the wonders of this world, nature, you know, the big stuff, but also the tiny micro wonders as well in conversation with your friends. Get them outside, go walking, climb a hill, not, not those ones. Um, look at the glasshouse mountains, you know, sit by the sea, find some trees, stay up and watch the stars. Let the world preach. As the Psalms say, the, the sky is constantly speaking of God and its voice is never silent. Paul tells us in Romans that God's power and nature can be known from what he has made. And then, after they've looked at the world, maybe tell them, as Job says, what the Almighty God has planned. All those, this, the mysteries that, Job, that, no, that Paul talks of, of Jesus' salvation for us. And I want to repeat this point again. We should let nature renew our awe too. One of the things I like about nature is that it is separate from us. It's there whether we're there or not. And I find that that can help us centre ourselves and find perspective. I find I can accept the mystery of God more easily somehow. I can sort of just accept being humble and in my right place amidst his greatness. Nature answers with God's voice, I am. I made you too. Be still and know that I am God. It's good for our soul. We can step back into the busyness with our inner place of communion with God refreshed and our self in balance. 
But despite all of Job's wisdom, it is interesting to observe that in chapter 29, Job also speaks like a comfortable Western person, a nominal believer, although I do think he's more than that. And I'll summarise. So this is stuff Job actually said, but I'm just putting it in modern words so we can connect with it. I had it all. People spoke well of me. I gave to charity. I was good to my subordinates. I was a good boss. I expected to live long. I was successful in my job. I was a leader. I was faithful to my wife. I mean, have you seen her? Um, I did the spiritual rituals. I was hospitable. I was the man. But now I've lost all that, except the wife. My influence, my safety, my dignity, my health, and worst, God is silent. He pays no attention to me. Basically, Job is saying, I lost that sense I had before of being okay before God by what I did. So remember that for later. Now, a tag-along junior to the friends begins to speak. I thought it'd be nice to stick an image of a llama up here um, because this guy's a bit of a llama. Um, This guy, Elihu, thinks that the three friends have totally messed up their arguments and that the Spirit of God, he says it a couple times, has given him some wisdom. And so he decides to speak on God's behalf. That's quite a cocky move. Now, he gets the awesomeness of God. He says things like, did God get his power from someone else? No. We are all made by God. And if God took back the breath of life, everyone living would die. But he also says, and I'll just summarise, you are clearly evil, Job, and being corrected by God. So he gets the awesomeness of God, but maybe not God's awesome love. And he can't help but incorporate what he sees around him as an illustration. And what he sees is an oncoming storm. You can imagine the wind begin to rise as this guy, Elihu's thoughts, seeing the storm come closer, begin to expand on God's greatness and power. So listen to the language of awe. Remember how great is God's power. Everyone has seen what he has done, but no one understands it all. We cannot fully know his greatness. And you can see by the words that I've highlighted in blue on the screen that the storm is building and he's using that to pull it into his argument. It's God, and I'm summarising here, who makes this rain, this thunder, this lightning happen, and we don't know how. Listen further. Even though Elihu is compromised in his grasp of God, being exposed to the natural wonders of our world, contemplating it, helps him understand God and his nature and power more accurately. The storm makes my heart beat wildly. Listen, all of you, to the voice of God. He's saying, listen, this is what God is like. He's powerful. To the thunder that comes from his mouth, the majestic sound of thunder. He connects God with majesty. He starts to see that God has a royalty to him. At at God's command, amazing things happen. He says God amazes us. Wonderful things we can't understand. He, he realises that God is a God of wonders. He's beyond us. He shows us what he can do. Nature reminds him of the capability of God. And so the storm builds. And as you can see in some of the words up there, Elihu expresses that the extent of God's power is unlimited. And it makes him invite Job to think about God too. Well, that's a bit hard to read. But the, the words up there describe the building storm and he says consider the wonderful things God does do you know how he does it and in the next section as God himself approaches in the storm uh, Elihu suddenly grasps that Job has a realer relationship with God than he does he wants Job to stand between him and God just as the Israelites later at Sinai also want that and he's actually so overawed he actually can, he can't he struggles to think or even recall his point I mean, I I would probably feel like that if I I saw those clouds too. Teach us what to say to God. 
our minds are blank. We have nothing to say. Unlike Job, who's been crying out to come closer to God, Elohu, who talked a very big theological game, he doesn't want to approach or come to go close to God as he sees God's power. And using almost the same words the Israelites will say at Sinai, he says, I won't ask to speak with God. Why should I give him a chance to destroy me? And then the glory of God increases as God actually arrives. And he says, now the light in the sky is dazzling. It's too bright for us to look at. A golden glow is seen in the north and the glory of God fills us with awe. God's power is so great we cannot come near him. He is righteous and just in his dealings with us. God's presence makes Elihu realise God's rightness of being, his justice. He says, no wonder then that everyone is awed by him and that he ignores those who claim to be wise. And finally, Elihu falls silent in awe or possibly drops unconscious with an overwhelmed mind and body because some people like Daniel did that in the presence of Mia, angels. And now God speaks out of the storm and he uses the grandeur and full breadth of the cosmos and its total reliance on him to demonstrate his greatness and to basically provide a textbook example of overawing someone. He says, Who are you? to question my wisdom with your ignorant, empty words and stand up when I'm talking to you. Now, that's authority. Were you there when I made the world? Oh, if you know so much, tell me about it. Now, we are to be like God, so that means that sassy pants sarcasm is now on the table. Who laid the cornerstone of the world? You know, he's kind of like saying, the centre point of the only place we've found so far in the cosmos capable of supporting human life? Yeah, that one. In the dawn of that day when the stars sang together and the heavenly beings shouted for joy. God's telling us what the creation of the world was like. Now, C.S. Lewis developed this picture of the beginning of time itself. Time itself is another created thing in The Magician's Nephew. So I'm just going to read a passage to you because I find this passage inspires awe in me when I read it. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing... It was very far away, and Diggory found it hard to decide from what direction it was coming. Sometimes it seemed to come from all directions at once. Sometimes he almost thought it was coming out of the earth beneath them. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune, but it was, beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful he could hardly bear it. Then two wonders happened in the same moment. One was that the voice was suddenly joined by other voices, more voices than you could possibly count. They were in harmony with it, but far higher up the scale, cold, tingling, silvery voices. And the second wonder was that the blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently one by one as they do on a summer evening. One moment there had been nothing but darkness. The next moment, a thousand, thousand points of light leapt out, single stars, constellations and planets. There were no clouds. The new stars and the new voices began at exactly the same time. If you had seen it and heard it, as Diggory did, you would have felt quite certain that it was the stars themselves which were singing and that it was the first voice, the deep one, this gets me, which had made them appear and made them sing. And as you can tell, I find that an awe-inspiring vision of the creation of the world. That's what God's trying to connect Job with. So let me pull out some other things God says. I mean, I'd love to read it all because it's not every day I get to play God. (laughs) 
Yeah, pun intended. I marked a boundary for the sea. I told it, so far and no farther. Here, your powerful waves must stop. I mean, consider, the ocean stops regularly in one spot, thanks to its dance with our moon. That is an amazing wonder. It doesn't overrun the land in enormous tired lands, changing each day, making life impossible. He says, Job, have you ever, in all your life, commanded a day to dawn? Have you been to the springs in the depths of the sea? Have you walked on the floor of the ocean? Imagine the Marianas Trench, the deepest place on earth, the intense pressure of those depths. Our increasing knowledge of this world only increases the awesomeness of God. And God goes on to refer to sources of light, darkness, snow, hail, rain and ice. He says, has anyone ever shown you the gates that guard the dark world of the dead? Consider, God created the boundary between life and death. Have you any idea how big the world is? Answer me if you know. Oh, I'm sure you can because you're so old and you were there when the world was made. Sarcasm on a Sunday morning and I'm just quoting scripture. Uh, but any kids who are here, please don't be a sassy pants to your parents. You need to be God to get away with this. God says, can you tie the Pallades together? Do you know the laws that govern the skies? God reminds Job, he made the rules of gravity, of physics, of existence. And he goes onwards into chapter 40 and 41. He uses amazing animals, lions, deer, um, you know, hawks, eagles, to ask Job questions. You know, did you know? Can you do? And when prompted, Job is like, yeah, I'm just going to shut up and grovel. But God demands he stand. Now, actually, this sort of caught me last night and I went, oh, why does he demand he stand? And there was a couple things that came to mind. One is that I think God does want to be in dialogue with us. He doesn't want, he wants to have a relationship that is more than us just kneeling pathetically. But it could also be that he gave us his authority, this amazing authority over this world at the beginning. Yeah, we gave it away, but we were meant to have this impressive authority that I've just been describing. I mean, think about that for a second. And it's been given back to us. So let's stand up and use it. All right, segue done. God continues, are you, are you as strong as I am? Can your voice thunder as loud as mine? We often refer to the still, small voice in the Elijah story, and that's, that's very valid. But God can also speak in thunder too. I mean, at Jesus' baptism, some said it thundered. God says, if so, stand up in your honour and pride. Clothe yourself in majesty and glory. I mean, I struggle just to clothe myself in this morning, let alone with majesty. Um, our kings and our pomps and our cathedrals are human attempts to give visuals to the glory of God, you know, which a forest or a mountain or a, a sunset with a martyrs of clouds can outdo in a moment. God says, can you destroy the powerful? God can. Or simply alter the time of death? God can. And God finishes with two of the most awful of his creatures. He's giving Job an image of wild, strong, terrifying power by using animals Job would have encountered and been awed by. He describes an untamable dinosaur. I created him and I created you. And later in chapter 41, a dragon type of dinosaur who God says strikes helpless terror into even the strongest person. Flames blaze from his mouth and streams of sparks fly out. Smoke comes pouring out of his nose and his breath starts fires burning. For him, iron is as flimsy as straw. There is no arrow that can make him run. He laughs when men throw spears. There is nothing on earth to compare with him. 
And God is greater, wilder, and more untamable and terrifying yet. And that is who we are meeting with on a Sunday morning, whose authority we invoke when we command healing. Because Jesus is all that. He is good, as Lewis said, but he's wild. Um, Job's final response to all of this is, you're powerful. You are all powerful. You can do everything you want. I talked about things I didn't understand, about marvels too great for me. Before, I knew what only others had told me, i.e. I relied on what the preacher said or what I read. But now I've seen you with my own eyes. He's saying, now I've had a personal experience of God. Job maybe had a theoretical and accurate in many ways grasp of God before, but now he has a more complete grasp. An important part of that, God's speech suggests, is awe of God. God made us and he knows that awe of him is good for us, for our soul, for our relationship with him and our place in the world. So, as I finish up, get out in nature, take your unsaved friends and renew your awe. And just I'm going to finish with an opportunity, um, as Bo plays this track, for us to silently just contemplate the, the awesomeness of God just with a few of the images from before and a few new ones. And then I'll, I'll do the, the healing prayer. So if you can play the track and the images, Bo.